Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So there are five books of major prophecy in the Bible, um, four authors, and uh, Lamentations is the only one that doesn't have its name associated with, with its author. So there are naysayers that say it's not Jeremiah, but most agree that it's Jeremiah who wrote Lamentations. So um, a prophet is a mouthpiece. It's one who speaks on behalf of another. The Hebrew root for prophet is nabi, and uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word is prophetes. Both of these just simply mean a spokesman or a speaker. So if you have an elevated thought of the prophets, we should. They were called by God and endured much for the sake of the Lord's word. Uh, but they're people. And they were not their words. They were God's words. We see one example of an Old Testament prophet in Exodus 7 1. God told Moses that he would be like God to Pharaoh. Uh, in this text, Moses is not considered the prophet. As we keep reading, it said, um, God told Moses that he, Moses, would be like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron would be Nabieka, your prophet or mouthpiece. And we know that Aaron was the one who actually did the speaking before Pharaoh. So Aaron was a prophet for Moses, simply his mouthpiece. The prophet was an empty vessel that would be filled with the words of God. So we look back now at some of God's mouthpieces, um, the writing, or known as the canonical prophets, because there were many prophets in Scripture, but these are the uh, canonical written prophets, are categorized, of course, into major and minor prophets, uh, not because of the importance of their words, but simply the length of the text. The four major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And the 12 minor prophets, which we'll be learning about in the coming week, um, there are 12 of them. And there are various major and minor prophets uh, who were contemporaries of one another. Um, Isaiah, as we'll study this morning, uh, was in the time of the, uh, he was in southern Judah, he was in the time of the Assyrian conquest, and a hundred years later we find Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And I've included a handout here on the, on the back of the handout, a visual of the timeline of the prophets. And it's helpful to see what prophets overlap another prophet, uh, because in biblical sequence, uh, they don't always um, show up in history the way that you think that they would. So that's a helpful reference. So a prophet may be perceived as one who has mystical future insights, such as the famed quatrain writer Nostradamus. Is anyone familiar with Nostradamus? Okay, he's on the History Channel a lot. People consider him to be a word of authority for our calamities of today. He's not, but people like to think that he is. A prophet may be viewed as a farce who speaks to itching ears, and we'll be hearing about a couple of those, like Hananiah the prophet in the time of Jeremiah. A prophet may also be viewed as a rigid messenger who has harsh words and doesn't really care about the people he's talking to. He's just a reasonable flamethrower 
just giving out words to set the nation on fire. That is not the case. So you'll find as we study these this morning, um, also there is a majority voice that is always going against the minority voice. And what I mean, what I mean by that is the Lord's chosen prophet was speaking into a culture that was not receptive, and there were many voices that were trying to drown his out because either they had self um, they had a selfish ambition to become great, um, or they were getting stuff from the king to say the false things. Um, as we read about Elijah, for instance, with Mount Carmel and all of the prophets of Baal, there was one of him and 850 of them. So if you think of that ratio, that was, that was what our prophets of God were actually up against. And it's no different today. For every true voice, there are a hundred false voices ready to sweep your mind away um, into irrelevancy. Um, but the voice of God, the word of God we know stands forever. Christ says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And this is more relevant to us today than I would say ever before with the increase of communication. Words are everywhere. They're heard, they're read, they're even seen. But the voices we hear in our podcasts and videos, um, they're always far more false than there are true uh, just like in the Old Testament. And so, even though we're not national Israel, um, and these promises and warnings and judgments were specific to the uh, nation, specifically of Judah, what we're studying this morning, um, we who have been engrafted into his chosen fold uh, still receive uh, the same knowledge in God's character and his attributes on display. We'll see his patience and his mercy We'll see also his wrath and the judgment that comes from his wrath and the love that he has for his people and his faithfulness to his people. And because of that, we can know him better today. That's why it's relevant to study the major prophets. So let's begin this morning with Isaiah. And if you're Martin Lloyd-Jones, I heard a lot of his sermons. Isaiah, you'd always call him Isaiah. I love that much more than Isaiah because it looks better phonetically, uh, but Isaiah. So he prophesied between 740 B.C. and 686 B.C. Uh, this was around uh, 54 years, doing the math. He was well-educated, and he has the greatest word choice of all of the prophets. Uh, his word choice is even more than David in all 150 of the Psalms, so 2,186 different words he used in his writing. He was a man of the palace, he was royalty of the royal line, noble blood, and he was easily able to access the kings of Judah during his time, and he served, um, well, I'll come back to that. I need to be using my slideshow, don't I? Yeah, that's something I'm not used to using, I apologize. Um, so, 
His father Amos was a brother to um, King Amaziah through Jewish traditional rabbinical texts. So I looked up because it's not in scripture. So I wanted to hear what some of the rabbis were saying about this. And as I was watching some of them, they were reading from the Torah and doing different things and uh, their Megillahs. And uh, I would see them kind of do this number as they were reading. It was kind of a rocking motion. Um, so that was something that I was not used to, but it, it's uh, a sign of respect when they're reading God's word. Um, it causes their bones to tremble. So that was something I learned in this as well. And um, we know they don't use the word God in writing. It's G with a hyphen and a D because they respect and honor God's name, which is good. But it says, um, so I can't confirm that he, he was actually brothers with King Amaziah, but what I can say is that he, he, has, he had a wife. Isaiah also had two sons, and they were probably also very good spellers because uh, the one's name was Shear Jeshub, the other was Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. So if he could get all those hyphens and capitals where they needed to be, I'm sure he was a school spelling bee champ. Um, these had meaning. The Lord told him what to name his children. One meant a remnant shall return. That was alluding to the foreshadow of um, the captivity. And also, hasting to the spoil, hurrying to the prey. And that was talking about the downfall of um, the nation. So, in Isaiah 1.1, we see his calling. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. At the time of King Uzziah, Judah was strong. It had high and strong walls, and it was an economically sound and lucrative uh, port of commerce in the Red Sea. Um, I will also say Uzziah, who was king at the time of uh, Isaiah's calling, he was a very long-reigning and good king, even though he had a couple of um, missteps. His son Jotham was also a warrior, also a good king, as Scripture says in 2 Chronicles 28. Um, Ahaz was not. Ahaz was wicked. Um, a lot of the calamities that came came from his own idol worship. He actually took out the Lord's um, worship vessels during his reign when things were looking bad and replaced them with, with idol worship. And the Lord was furious with him in that. Uh, we'll read about that, but it's uh, in Second Chronicles 26, um, we find that even as a good king, Uzziah had a corrupted heart. Um, at one point, uh, he had an enraged outburst against the priests who ordered him out of the sanctuary. He was trying to burn incense when he shouldn't have, and so the Lord struck him with leprosy. And because of this, Isaiah begins with, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks... Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox and a donkey know its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord and have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. God even calls His rebellious people Sodom and Gomorrah. So in verses 10 and 11, um, he calls out their superficial worship 
and their multiplied sacrifices. And he tells them in verse 13 to bring their worthless offerings no longer. He says he cannot endure their iniquity and will not even listen to their multiplied prayers. What a sad state of events when you are cut off from the Lord. But even in his anger, the Lord offers a choice to consent and obey, to be blessed or continue in their rebellion and face the curse of judgment, which in verse 20 of the same chapter results in being devoured by the sword. That was the end. We know what the wages of sin are, but a lot of us don't pause to think about the full implications of that. This theme of judgment is recurring throughout the first 35 chapters of this book. So if you want to think of the first 35 chapters of the 66 chapters of Isaiah, think about warning and judgment and speaking to those who are leading in that um, sin, the iniquity. So the first main section, uh, chapters 1 through 12, are mixed with impending judgment and idolatry, and the idolatry and symptoms of that sin are expressed in societal dysfunction, and we uh, see Isaiah repeating in the book about the forsaking of widows and the poor, as well as their lessened reverence and worship. And that, I would say, was just that goes hand in hand. When you don't revere the Lord, the effects of your walk with the Lord are corrupt. And the judgment of God would be a purifying fire to consume the dross and leave the remnant that is a recurring theme here of the prophets. So Isaiah, thankfully, is called the prophet of the Redeemer. And to redeem something means that something is lost or in the process of being lost, and it must be regained. And in Isaiah chapter 5, there is a parable of the vineyard, and the Lord himself um, carefully established this vineyard. However, it had worthless yields. And what does the Lord say he'll do with this worthless vineyard? He says, so now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will charge the clouds to rain, to, uh, to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delight, the plant. So he's telling you what these things represent. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And in verse 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. They're carrying this burden to their own demise. And he says, even those in the nation, when they're hearing these words, they said, let him, let God make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. So not only are they not accepting this word of Isaiah, they're also um, antagonizing and daring God to act. So you just see how deep their apostasy was. So in chapter 6, the famous vision of Isaiah the holiness of God is on display. And we would think that um, with Isaiah's zeal and his desire for righteousness that the Lord had given him, that when he saw the Lord, he would jump for joy and he'd say, 
I, the righteous Isaiah, am ready to speak, but we see him respond with, woe is me, for I am ruined or undone. We see disintegration of his own view of himself. His own righteousness is completely undone. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the presence of the holy, all unrighteousness is apparent and felt. It's not just a feeling of guilt, but it's an actual burden of true moral guilt before the Lord. The closer we are to the Lord, the better we view our own insufficiency and view our sin as heinous before a holy king. So one of the seraphim mercifully grabs a burning coal, and you're like, a burning coal to put on his lips. That's mercy? And it is. It sanctified Isaiah that he could speak to the people, and he said he was willing. He said, um, I am willing, send me. Where should I go? He says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So this is a hard saying of the prophet Isaiah. He's sending Isaiah to speak to these people, but he's also telling them, they're not going to understand what you're saying. They're not even going to see the coming doom that's, that's coming to them. It reminds me a lot of our own country. I love our country. I don't love the sin of our country. But we see the progression of things, and um, we could talk about that all morning, but we're not going to because this is Israel. But they were a specimen people, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. They were a specimen people that we can look at and every other nation of the world can learn from. Because if he's willing to judge his own people, he is certainly going to judge every nation similarly. So, let me go back here. All right, so the prophet of the Redeemer, with all of this sadness and gloom and doom, you know, I was reading through this for, uh, there's 183 chapters of the major prophets. There is a lot of gloom to read through, much sadness, much distress. But um, thankfully, the Lord is a merciful God. So amid the devastating message, the book also proclaims a coming future hope. Isaiah is said to be the prophet of the Redeemer. In chapter 7, verse 10, in response to King Ahaz's non-response to the Lord, he was the evil one, he says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, she will call his name Emmanuel. And again in chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And uh, the Lord of hosts is a name that Isaiah gives 60 times in this book. 
and it is the title of God is a warrior king, a conqueror, and it is mainly talking about the Lord's um, conquering over the wicked, uh, but he would also use the wicked to judge his own people. That nation was Assyria. During the time of Isaiah, Assyria was the great nation that the Lord brought up, and he actually likens them to a dog who he whistles for to send his judgment. He said, he will lift up a standard to the distant nation, that's Assyria, and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. Before the Assyrians would conquer northern Israel in 722, the northern kingdom would join forces with Aram, which is modern-day Syria, to invade and take captive their brethren of Judah, and under the reign of Ahaz, king of Judah, because Ahaz had set up idol worship and even reached out to the kings of Assyria for help. You know, there was a civil uh, unrest, there was a, a split um, that had happened long before, almost 200 years before, and the north and the south were not, um, even though they were brethren through blood, they were not um, politically joined. They were not allies. And so because of this wickedness, even southern Judah reaching out for help from the wicked Assyria, um, it says in Second Chronicles 28 and 29 that the northern kingdom joined with Aram, Israel, invaded into Judah and took away 120,000 captives of southern Judah. Um, now, this was before northern Israel had been destroyed. So this event happened in 734 B.C., and moving down through history in 722, that's when northern Israel was finally conquered by Assyria. And uh, Sennacherib was the leader of that endeavor. Um, his father before him, Sargon II, was, they were both um, systematically destroying the northern kingdom. And there were 46 cities that were actually destroyed during the time of, of Isaiah. And so he's witnessing all this from the south, and he's experiencing um, the calamities that are starting to unfold. And so that, that fuels the theme of his message. And uh, so in 734, uh, they began. By 722, the capital city was captured. Does anyone know the capital city of the northern kingdom? This is a little trivia. Anyone know that? Samaria. Samaria. Very good. Yeah, almost. Samaria. So, in chapters uh, 13 through 27, uh, we see here all of the other um, coming falls of Israel's neighbors. We're not going to talk about all of them. Because uh, that is helpful to see how the Lord works, and that's the Lord of hosts at work, judging the nations that were wicked. Uh, but our focus here is on God's people and um, what we can learn from them. So during the time of the conquest, you can just picture this, these dogs of war coming for the north. They conquered the north, and then they see little Judah in the south. They said, hey... If we can do this to 10 of the tribes, what are two more? And so they besiege the south. They besiege Jerusalem, the capital city of the south. And 
Hezekiah was the king at this time. Ahaz had died, the wicked Ahaz. And a lot of children who grow up in abusive households, they always say, I'm not going to be like my father because I see all the results that that happened, that happened within my household because of that alcoholism or drug use or something like that. Hezekiah, I feel like, witnessed that. He saw the idol worship and all the destruction that came from it, the anger of the Lord, the destruction of the north because of their unfaithfulness. And Hezekiah was a faithful man, I think, even more so because of that. He had built a wall around the city of Jerusalem that extended far past the original city of Jerusalem because when Sennacherib and the Assyrians conquered the north, what do you think happened to all of those people that were not taken as captives? What did they do? Does anyone know? They ran south. They became refugees into the south, and Hezekiah built a wall around them, and there is a picture here of Hezekiah's wall. This is a not modern-day picture. This is not Google Earth, um, but it is a representation. And when Sennacherib besieged the city, Hezekiah built these walls um, before he had come. You know, he saw this coming. But the Lord said to him, You saw that breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool. And there's actually, a, I don't have it in this diagram, but he built a channel for water to be able to supply the city in case of siege. Just a small little waterway of, of life. Um, but it, he says, you did not depend on him who made it. The Lord was saying, yes, you were trying to protect your people, but you were doing it with rocks and walls rather than my name, myself. And he says, nor did you consider him, God, who planned it long ago. He said, Hezekiah, don't you understand I'm the sovereign king of this land? You're building walls, but the walls of the north didn't suffice and neither will yours. He said, in order to defend Jerusalem and the refugees that had fled, this wall had actually, he had destroyed some of the homes that were built up. I kind of think of it like uh, in the Great Depression when they built the, the hobo towns, uh, what they call them, um, who was the president? Hoovervilles, right? Herbert Hoover was president, so they built these kind of shanty towns with odds and ends parts, and that's what they had to do here with the refugees. And Hezekiah knocked down some of those homes, and he built a wall, and this is a remnant of that wall. In 1973, um, Amon uh, Navigad, who was a Jewish archaeologist and historian found this and uncovered this through his endeavors. And uh, so this is a proof of King Hezekiah's wall. It's seven meters thick, not high, thick. Um, so it was a very great wall. Um, and the Lord told him and rebuked him for building this wall. Hezekiah repented um, even after Sennacherib sent messengers to, spring, to speak about the strength of Assyria. And they were just... They came to him and they said, you do realize who you're resisting, right? You do realize the great Sennacherib is on your doorstep. So the King Hezekiah, the great King Hezekiah, we'll call him because he was. He was a great king 
And he was great because he went to his knees at that moment. He went to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord heard Hezekiah's prayer and miraculously stops Sennacherib from destroying Jerusalem in 701 B.C. It says, The angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. It was a miraculous deliverance, 185,000 in the morning. Amazing. So chapters 28 through 35, we see warnings against the alliance with Egypt. Um, Isaiah's warning the south. Yeah, you got away with it this time. Do not go back to your idol worship. The Lord had mercy. He didn't get away with it. I will say the Lord had mercy. Do not reach out to pagan nations. Uh, so that's a series of warnings. Chapters 36 through 39, we see a historical interlude. So he's looking back. And the account of Hezekiah's victory over Sennacherib um, is part of that. Chapter 38 uh, we find that King Hezekiah is stricken with sickness and is at the point of death, and he cries out to the Lord again for mercy. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and tells him, the Lord has heard your prayer and will extend your life 15 years. He actually numbers his, his years. Sees the, we see the sovereignty of God. As a sign, the Lord caused the shadow. So if you can picture Hezekiah, he is at the point of death, sitting in his bed or in his throne chair, probably in his bed. And the scripture tells us that the Lord caused the shadow created by the setting sun to move back 10 stairs on the stairway nearest to him as a sign that he would extend his life. And I believe, uh, it doesn't say that in scripture, but I think that was the first daylight savings time. I'm pretty sure that's what that was. But we see God's mercy personally to Hezekiah. So he is a God of the nations, and he is a God of the person as well, individually. He also tells that um, there would be a new kingdom that would rise up after Assyria, Babylon. In chapters 40 through 48, there is, another, there is another announcement of hope, and the Lord fast-forwards 150 years after Isaiah to the time of the Babylonian exile. So this is a confusing uh, portion of Isaiah because, you know, we're talking about southern Judah, we're talking about Sennacherib and Assyria, and, but he's fast-forwarding now. So whenever you hit chapters 40 through 48... He's writing to the people of Judah who would be captives. So as we think about that, he says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, O comfort. In verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. So Isaiah's writings are given to the people. You know, they still read Isaiah's scroll. They were reading Isaiah's scroll a hundred years after his death. 
So he was writing this, the Lord was giving him this word to the future Babylonian captives when Babylonia would come in and take them away and destroy even um, the temple of God. So because Israel had rejected God, God will make a new way. In chapter 42, Isaiah again foretells of the Messiah. And he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. I think of Christ's ministry when he would heal someone and he would say, don't tell anyone about this. My time's not yet come. He was meek. He was mild. He was not Sennacherib. He was not a mighty warrior king, which is what the people were wanting, remember. They were wanting the mighty conquering king. They were looking for that Messiah, that Messiah, the one they had in mind. But the true Messiah came quietly. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And I encourage you to read that entire chapter. But the, Lord, the word of the Lord through Isaiah is looking to the first and the second advent of Christ. The first time he came quietly and meekly, strongly and righteously to save his chosen people. The second advent is affirmed as his coming warrior in verse 13. So Isaiah is, is a man of time. And what I mean by that is time is not an issue for Isaiah. He speaks what will happen, but he doesn't give us a perfect timeline. Uh, we just trust the Lord and see it unfold. Um, so in that one chapter, we see Christ's first advent, his coming, and his second uh, that has not yet come that we look forward to. Chapter 48, after all of this, Israel is still hard-hearted and rebellious. And really? After all of this promise, they're still hard-hearted and rebellious. So chapters 49 through 57 then, we see um, another foretelling of Christ's mission. He's called the suffering servant of the Lord. In chapter 53, verse 5, he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and, his scourging, and by his scourging we are healed. And why? Well, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So who is the transgressor here? Well, for the people in Isaiah's day, they're thinking, well, it's us. And in our time, we say, it's us, because we have all transgressed the laws. Israel was a specimen people, but we are also part of the world, and we are people. And we, that this thankfully extends out beyond the borders of the nation of Israel into us, the Gentiles. God's covenant of peace and free offer of mercy in chapters 54 and 55 are extended to all nations who would be blessed through God's suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And then we also have a future glory of Israel, of God's people. 
He draws a line in the sand of eternity between those who choose him or choose themselves in their wickedness, even in the coming glory of the Lord. In chapter 59, the Lord pleads for Israel to forsake their sins so that future blessedness would come to Zion. The hope of future deliverance is always the hope of national Israel. The Lord says in chapter 65, verse 2, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. So God will continue to separate the faithful from the unfaithful, even in their redemption. In verse 22 of the final chapter, he says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. This contrasted with the unfaithful, so, so that is the faithful who choose God, that's their end, and it's contrasted with the unfaithful, and this is how the, this is how the entire book ends. He says, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. The Lord is merciful for us to be reminded of the stark contrast between the end of his sheep and of the goats. And I want to make this somewhat of a gospel call to anyone who's here that doesn't know the Lord. Who are you? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? It's always a question that, that should be asked whenever we read of something so um, certain. And I would say... Um, Scary. It is very scary. Well, we're going to move on to Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived a hundred years after Isaiah, whenever the Babylonians were strong. And Jeremiah was a prophet and a priest. Now, there is a movie um, with Patrick Dempsey. Uh, it's called Jeremiah. Has anyone seen that movie? It's just entitled Jeremiah. Well, I saw it when I was probably in college. It came out in 98, but I saw it on DVD. Someone had it, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. It is very true to the text, and I want to encourage you. It's free on YouTube. Um, you just type in Jeremiah, Patrick Dempsey. Uh, it'll show up, and it's a very good uh, video as far as um, who he prophesied under all of, all of his trials. But he was called as a prophet in 626 B.C., and preached for 40 years until 585. He prophesied in the time of the final five kings of Judah. Um, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Um, Zedekiah was an evil, weak, appeasing king. He's kind of like a, um, bought out already. But throughout Jeremiah's time as a prophet, he had a scribe named Baruch, and he wrote down all of the actual words. So he was dictated to and he wrote it down. Baruch was a, was a faithful companion for Jeremiah and a brave man. Jeremiah's message was very clear. Judah is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians because of sin. If Judah would repent of her wickedness, God will save her from destruction. If Judah would submit to the invading Babylon after the fall was inevitable, so this is later on through his prophecies, he was encouraging them to just submit to the Babylonians. It's God's will. And he was viewed as a traitor for that because he didn't want all of the people, God wanted his remnant to survive. And the people were like, we're not going to give in. We're not going to give in to the Babylonians. And you're a traitor, Jeremiah, because you want us to. 
So he even faced that backlash. And also, Judah would be destroyed, yet it would return to strength after the exile. And the fifth thing is Babylon would herself be destroyed, never rising again. So these are very great prophecies. So the first 24 chapters are accusations and warnings, very similar to Isaiah's. We won't go into detail about that, because I think we already get the picture there. Um, But whenever Jeremiah was called into service, the Lord said, I appoint you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah's response, alas, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, because I'm a youth. So he's between 20 and 25 years old at this time. And the Lord tells him, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And this is why he is known as the reluctant prophet, very similar to to Moses. Jeremiah faced death threats, isolation, beaten and placed in the stocks, arrested, challenged by the false prophet Hananiah, rejected by wicked King Jehoiakim, who burned his writings twice. Um, He experienced starvation He was chained and even marched to Babylon with the other exiles. Jeremiah wasn't some untouchable, um, harsh critic of his own nation. He was in the trenches talking to people before the temple. And there's a great temple speech uh, from chapter 7. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. He says, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. All the people were hearing this and they're thinking, telling us to amend our ways. We're coming to worship in the temple of the Lord. God resides in that temple. No one can take this city. This is the temple of the Lord, is what they would say to him. Jeremiah continues and says, Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Three times for emphasis there. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after the gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. And he continues. He says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The Lord is speaking through Jeremiah and telling all the people that were self-righteous with dependency on the temple and tradition and the law. It's not, it's not good enough. So in chapter 9, we see a snapshot of the compassion and sensitivity of the weeping prophet. He says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. So Jeremiah was very similar to Christ. If you remember, Christ wept over Jerusalem. If only I could gather you as a hen gathers her chicks and protect you under my wings. So in chapter 20, verse 7, Jeremiah plainly says, um, because of his rejection and his weeping, 
He says, I have become a laughing stock all day long. And he just says starkly, everyone mocks me. Now, if you are sharing the gospel to your neighbors and your friends, you may feel like a laughing stock or that people mock you. Um, doesn't really matter. It's not nice. But in the end, it really doesn't matter. Jeremiah here, he's experiencing this. He could go on to um, give up, but he says, I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name. He's feeling so downtrodden. So I want, I'm including this because we need to realize the humanity of these prophets. He really wants to give up. But he said, then my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary from holding it in. I can't endure it. He says, but the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. So he's getting ready to give up, but when he remembers that his God is the champion, he develops a heart of praise. Uh, so that should also be our pattern when we feel like giving up and giving in or not speaking on the Lord's behalf. Remember who your dread champion is. He's already the victor, so continue as Jeremiah did. So chapter 25, Babylon's a cup about to spill over. I'm not going to get through all my material. I'm just not going to. But I will say that the pattern continues. In Lamentations, we see that Jeremiah lives into the conquering of Babylon in 586. 586, everything he said finally comes to pass. He's even taken away as an exile. And um, there's a picture that the great Rembrandt painted of Jeremiah weeping or lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. And... Uh, uh, there are lamentations throughout Scripture, but these are specific to Jerusalem and the Lord's uh, Judah. So um, I'm going to move on to Ezekiel, uh, simplified, the wheels, the bittersweet scroll, um, and the dry bones. So the wheels are the glory of the Lord that he witnessed at the beginning of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel and Daniel, by the way, are about the same age. They were both um, living through the captivity. They were after Jeremiah. Jeremiah was 20 years older than Ezekiel, um, so he had already prophesied. He had already been taken captive. Ezekiel was also taken captive, and while he's on the banks of the Shebar River um, when he's 30 years old, he looks up and he has a vision that the Lord had given him of um, these wheels within wheels and this throne and these creatures supporting it with straight, strong legs, and it's the throne of God it's the glory of God in a visual representation. Um, and it's leaving the temple and it's going into Babylon. And this great glory of the Lord um, was illustrating... Let me find my place here. I skipped ahead. Um, it was illustrating that the glory of the Lord was not... Um, bound up in the temple, but that it followed his people in, into their captivity. And um, the Lord told Ezekiel, here's a scroll. I want you to read what's in it. And it was bittersweet, just like all these things I've been telling you this morning. It was all bitter, bitter stuff. It was bitter to the taste. And he said, I want you to eat this scroll. 
Now, was it symbolic? We think it's symbolic. We also ingest God's word, but he said, I want you to eat it. And when he, when he tasted it, when he ate it, it was sweet to the taste. So these bitter words were actually a sweetness. And so as we read this, and I can tell you from experience, as I was studying all this material, yes, it's very bitter, but it's also extremely sweet because we see the faithfulness of God in all of his people. And then um, Ezekiel was also a wonderful uh, prophet in that he did sign acts, which one of them was he had to uh, make a outside of where he was staying out in the streets, and he had to throw rocks at the city for over a year. And then he would lay on his side, bound up in cords, and he had to, um, and that was, by the way, talking about the destruction that was coming and that kind of thing, uh, the Lord's judgment, that's what the rock thing was. But also we see him bound up and laying on his side for over a year, and he had to cook his food over um, human feces that were burning, disgusting. He begged the Lord not to have him do this, and the Lord said, I'll have mercy on you, and you just have to use animal dung instead of human why did he do that? Because it was a testimony of the people. It was like a living billboard for what the people would endure. Scarcity of food, um, harsh conditions. Um, so he did these sign acts as well. Um, he also had to cut his hair with his sword. And uh, he, had to he had to burn a third of it, which would just, uh, talk about a third of the people would be destroyed. He had to have a third of it scattered. And then he had a third of it left on himself, and that was, which was left on him. Those hairs were... Uh, the remnant that would come back with him into the country. And then we have a hope in chapters 34 through 37, which is uh, the Valley of Dry Bones. And God said, I'm going to take this dry, dead nation and I'm going to renew it. And as he was watching, you know, all the, the muscle and the skin formed over uh, and it became a mighty army. And so that was the hope of Ezekiel. And then Daniel, we know, lived about the same time as Ezekiel. He was in exile from 605 B.C., um, uh, 19 years before the utter destruction of the temple. So Daniel and his three friends, and we know them pretty well, the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were their Babylonian names. Um, Azariah, Mishael, and Azariah were, um, and Hananiah were their three um, Israeli names. Uh, but we know with the brainwashing and re-education is what they like to call it these days, um, he had to, they had to adopt all the Babylonian um, ways of life. And so uh, it's both prophetic to the people, but also apocalyptic. And the apocalyptic section of it, um, apocalyptine, simply means to uncover or reveal something. Uh, the book of Revelation is revealing things at the end of time. Uh, so this book is apocalyptic in that um, chapters 7 through 12 are about the future events of the world. Um, and part of it is written in Hebrew. Some of it is written in Babylonian Aramaic, which was more of the common tongue that was being spoken with the people that he was around. Um, so that's why he includes both of them. Uh, let's see. We read about the faithfulness of Daniel in, his, in the dreams. Um, I, will, I will say this. We think of Daniel just interpreting dreams, kind of like Joseph did. Daniel didn't only have to interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, he actually had to tell the king what his dream was and then interpret it. 
uh, that was the Lord's doing, okay? So Daniel was blessed of the Lord, and if he wouldn't have told the king his dream, then all of his friends, and himself included, as well as all the wicked um, wizards and sorcerers and wise people of the king in Babylon, in Babylon, they'd all be killed. And that was the ultimatum that the king put on them. So all of these wise men were looking at Daniel like, please interpret the dream properly, and he did. And it rose Daniel to prominence, and even Ezekiel writes about Daniel in Ezekiel. So you can read three different places about Daniel in a reverential way, like he's a man of God. And he could see him from afar, even in southern Judah. You know, Daniel was already in exile, and he was writing about him. So um, there are many symbolic things. I'm going to end now. Uh, but there are many symbolic things that I encourage you to, to read about. It's not impossible to learn about. Uh, it's very helpful, actually, and it will encourage you um, greatly uh, seeing what the Lord has planned. So uh, let's end in prayer and thank the Lord for his word. Dear Heavenly Father, these uh, prophetical books are very helpful. We thank you that you have preserved them for us. Uh, we thank you for the faithfulness of the men that you have called and we pray, Lord, for the prophets of today, those who are your mouthpieces like Bryce and, and others who are faithful in our area and nation. Lord, we just pray that you would continue to encourage them, uh, that they would speak boldly and clearly, and uh, that people, many, would come to um, revere you and to love you and uh, follow you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.